recently, Carol Burnett came out with a new book, In Such Good Company. And it goes back to talk about the behind the scenes and, and her television show that actually began 50 years ago this year. It was back in 1967. It ran for 11 years till 1978. Huge success. And certainly propelled her to great fame. So she starts telling some of these behind-the-scenes stories. You know, it's hard to believe Carol Burnett is now 83 years old. She's doing so well and doing so much. But I think it's fascinating when you go back and look at how she ever got into the entertainment industry. This is back in 1954. She was a young lady. She wanted to break into Broadway. And so she had gone to New York, and there she was renting a, a place at the rehearsal club. It was an apartment complex where you could go and stay and there were some wonderful Episcopalian ladies who would help to underwrite the cost of the, uh, of the rent. And all you had to do was two things. You had to be going on auditions and you had to get a part-time job so you could pay something towards the rent. And if you were going on auditions and paying something towards the rent, they helped to subsidize the rest. They wanted to help young women have a dream to break in in New York. And so she was going on all these auditions, but she wasn't being able to really do them because she didn't have an agent. And if you don't have an agent, you can't get in a play. And if you're never in a play to be seen, you can't get an agent. And it seemed to be hopeless. So not long after being there, it was on a Saturday night. She was at home at the apartment. Her four friends, her roommates, they'd all gone out on dates. But she was sitting at home. It was pouring down rain. And she was sitting there and listening to the radio and on became a song from Pajama Game. It was a number one hit that time in the U.S. And she was listening to the song and then she opened up the newspaper and here was an ad for the show Pajama Game. And she saw that and she thought, somebody's trying to tell me something. She started thinking about a friend she had back in, in Hollywood who'd been saying to her, you know, I met the guy, Eddie Foy Jr., who is the star in Pajama Game. He's the star, but he was in a movie, and this guy was an extra, but somehow got to know Eddie a little bit, and he said, Carol, he's a wonderful guy. If you have a problem, go see him. And while she's sitting there listening to the song, looking at this ad, thinking about this friend, it's like she heard a voice say, Carol, what do you want? Why are you sitting here? Before she could lose her courage, she got up, she put on her raincoat, put on her galoshes, put on her rain hat, got her an umbrella, and she went out into that storm. She went all the way to St. James Theater, went around the back and found the stage door, and it was unlocked. She went inside, and, and I mean, she's standing there in the backstage of this the Broadway show, she says, like something out of a movie. She's dripping wet, taking off her raincoat and galoshes, sitting over in the corner. There's this guard. And he looked up and he said, hey, kid, what do you want? I'm here to see Eddie. You know Eddie? She nodded her head. She said, I, I hated to lie. I, I mean, I didn't know Eddie personally. But I mean, I knew Eddie. Everybody knew Eddie. So I could say honestly, yeah, I, I know Eddie. 
He said, all right, well, stay right where you are. He's coming by in a minute. She said she listened and she could begin to hear all the applause. The show was coming to an end. People were taking curtain calls. She said, I was standing backstage at a Broadway play. She said, it was like a dream. Suddenly in a few moments, here came Eddie. And as Eddie came along, the guard hollered, hey, Eddie, this kid over here wants to see you. And Eddie stopped. And Carol said, he came over to see me. And he came over and he looked at her for a moment and said, hey, kid, what do you want? And Carol said for a moment she lost her voice. She couldn't speak. Finally, she took a breath and said, well, Mr. Foy, I'm, I'm here from Hollywood. I've just moved out here to New York. I'm trying to get into a play, but you can't get into a play unless you have an agent. I don't have an agent, so I can't get into a play, and I can't get into a play. I can't get an agent. And I, I have this friend out in Hollywood who was a, an extra in a show, and he got to know you and said, you're a really nice guy, and if I needed help, I need to come see you. She said she took a breath and said, could you help me? And he looked at her for a moment and said, well, kid, can you dance? A little. Can you sing? Some. He took out a paper and wrote down a phone number and said, here's the number of my agent. I'll call and tell him that you're calling. I'll make sure that you get an audition to be in our chorus. Good luck. And he went to his dressing room. And Carol Burnett said, I didn't realize it, but that moment my life changed forever. It was in that moment, she said, he gave me what I asked for. He didn't laugh me out of the theater. He didn't throw me out of the theater. He gave me what I needed. She went home and told her friends, and on Monday morning, she called the agent for the first time since she'd been in New York, she got in to see an agent. The agent looked at her portfolio and said, man, this is pretty good. What can I see you in? Well, I'm not in a show because I don't have an agent. I can't get an agent. I get... He said, why don't you put one on yourself? It's a great idea. She went home to her four friends and she said, why don't we write up a script and kind of have a music variety show? We could sing and dance and do a little bit. So they started working on the scripts and these wonderful Episcopalian ladies chipped in $200 so they could rent a theater for two nights. They put together their script. They rented the theater. They sent out postcards to a whole bunch of agents and directors saying, this is your ticket to get in and see the newest talent on Broadway. And you know, most of them showed up. Two nights. And at the end of two nights, three out of the five ladies had an agent. And Carol Burnett said, my life was never the same. After that night... When I kept hearing, hey, kid, what do you want? If somebody came up to you and said, hey, kid, what do you want? What would you say? Do you have a dream? Do you have some passion that is pulling you forward into the future? Is there something that you're wanting to give yourself to that requires you to give your best, to sacrifice, to work hard? Do you have a God-given dream? Hey, kid, what do you want? 
This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Impossible Possibilities. We've said that as we go through Lent, we're going to look at the things that, that we all want, a life of meaning. We all want to feel like our life has purpose, meaning. It stands for something. You have a sense of joy. And yet so often we feel that's impossible because of life circumstances. It might be finances you're struggling with. It might be your health. It might be relationships that are struggling. Maybe you feel you're too young or you're too old. We can look at life and feel like, I really can't have that dream or meaning the thing that calls me forward. It's impossible. But the truth is, it's an impossible possibility. I think there's no better way to see it than our scripture lesson this morning, which is one of my favorite scriptures. What a great story. For it's the story of a blind beggar sitting beside the road. Now, if you read the story in Luke 18, you can also go read the same story in Mark 10 or in Matthew 20. All three Gospels tell the same story. And in every Gospel, they add a few other details that another one may leave out. So if you read all three, you kind of put together the story the best we can. For instance, it's Mark who tells us that this blind beggar's name was Bartimaeus. Now Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. What we know was at one time he could see. He asked Jesus to restore his sight. That means as a boy growing up, he was able to see the hills around Jericho, see his dog running out across the hillside, look into his mother's face. But one day he lost his sight. It happens so often in those days. Disease, just think about it, cataracts, glaucoma, all these things we can take care of. No, people went blind. And here this person who used to be able to see lost his sight. Now, there was no social security, social undernet here to, to kind of take care of people. And so you had to suddenly, if you lost your sight, count on family. And you needed to still do your part. And your part was to go sit on beside the road and ask for alms. It was begging for money. That was not something that was degrading. People expected you to do that. It's the only thing you could do. And so Bartimaeus went and sat beside the road all day long to ask for alms, the generosity from people of faith who would know it could happen to me. I will be generous. He sat beside the road asking for alms. Well, Jesus had started up in North Galilee and he was on his way to Jerusalem. And as he traveled south along the Jordan River, he would come to Jericho and then head over to Jerusalem. We know that he was going for the Passover. And it would be the last week and Jesus would be crucified. Whenever people traveled, you would fall in with them and it was a great time to have a discussion, to be able to talk, to visit, to, uh, to have dialogue. And so as Jesus would draw near to a town, people would come out, they would walk with him, talking. I mean, Jesus had become quite famous. I mean, everybody had heard people hearing his preaching, his teaching, hearing about miracles. Now as he got near Jericho, the crowds were building. 
And so Bartimaeus is sitting out there beside the road. The crowds are building with Jesus. He's coming by. Bartimaeus hears what's going on and he says, what's happening? (coughs) Somebody said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He had heard the stories. And Bartimaeus gets excited. This is an opportunity. And he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now all the people who are walking, they respond like you think they would. They said, be quiet. Don't bother the man. This is important. He's, be quiet. He would not be silenced. He kept shouting louder and louder. Jesus couldn't see him off the side of the road. There was a crowd, but he heard. And he stopped the crowd and said, bring this man to me. And Barnabas suddenly came and fell at Jesus' feet. And Jesus said, hey kid, what do you want? Or something like that. It was something like that. He said, what do you want me to do for you? Same question. What do you want me to do for you? Let me receive my sight. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Now we know the word faith does not mean your beliefs have made you well. Faith, we say, is trust. It's when you and I trust in God's grace. God's constant love of us as children. It is your trust in God's grace that has healed you, made you well. And Bartimaeus blinks a few times and he can see. He can see. And he is so thrilled and excited. And Luke says, and after Jesus healed him, he followed him, praising God. Now Mark doesn't want you to miss this because it's so important. He says, And he followed him on the way. The way was the name of the church. It's what the church was known as in the first century, the way. And Mark is trying to make it clear, when you receive your sight, not just physical sight, when you receive sight in your heart, you follow Jesus on the way. Now, when we read this story... It's important to understand that Luke loves to tell a good miracle. And it's not just to tell you about a blind man being healed. He always has a deeper meaning. He always loves to put it at a strategic place and tell it with symbolism so that you understand there's another meaning here. And the meaning that is going on here is very clear. It wasn't just a healing of sight with the eyes. It was sight that comes from the heart, from the mind. To be able to look at life different. That the healing of sight that Jesus gives to us all. When you trust in God's grace. When you trust in God's love. Then you are healed. It gives you sight. It helps you to see in a different way. Those circumstances of your life. That's what I want us to look at this morning. And I want to say two things. First of all, it's because of our faith that we believe there's always something more. Our circumstances at this moment are not the end. It doesn't matter whether you even come to death. We believe there's something more. Because of God's love, wherever we are, 
there is something more. Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road, and that day he had no idea Jesus was going to come by, and he does. And Jesus gives him his sight, and now he is following Jesus, it said, on the way to Jerusalem. If you would have said to Bartimaeus that morning when he had breakfast, today you're going to be heading to Jerusalem. Not a one in a million chances. It was impossible. Possibility. Because of trusting in God's love. The possibilities for your life, because you trust. God is the God of creation. The creation of possibilities. It was back in 1997, Steve Jobs came back to Apple Computer. You remember that he was the founder, the creator of Apple in his own garage, started the business, got it to where it was an incredible company. And in 1985, the board of directors basically fired him because they felt he was out of control zealot. He went off and did a few other things like DreamWorks and some other things. Apple, in the meantime, over the next 12 years, began to crash. And so in 1997, they decided they needed to bring Steve back. And so they brought him back as the CEO. And when he came back, the first thing he did was launch an advertising campaign that literally changed the company and it was one of the best advertising campaigns ever. They pulled it off in 17 days. They managed to do it. And I was watching a video recently, an old grainy video of Steve talking to the leaders in his company and he was saying to them, you know, we've lost our values. We've forgotten our core values. And people don't care about our megahertz and our speed. They want to know who we are. And we've forgotten. Who are we? We're people of passion who want to help people who want to change the world. And we give them tools to change the world. And so he explained a campaign that was about to begin, an advertising campaign called Think Different. You may remember it. Think Different. They got the pictures of all these people, everyone from Einstein to Amelia Earhart to Rosa Parks to Mahatma Gandhi. You'd see these big pictures show up on buildings or billboards or in magazines, and there'd be a quote they would have, and at the top it would say, Think Different, Apple. All that it said. Well, they put together a commercial. And I want to read you the the script of the commercial. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square hole, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, And the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Do you believe you can change the world? That you can change your world? Someone else's world? When you do, 
You changed the world. You know, not everyone in the world would say that Jesus is the Christ. But almost everyone still has to agree Jesus changed the world. Because He came and healed people's blindness. He enabled them to see life and the world differently. And as people begin to see their world and the world differently, change the world. It is because of our faith in Christ that you and I are able to think different. We see our circumstances different. And when you see them differently, it changes things. You know, I'm a product of the 60s. I was a teenager in the 60s. And one of the quotes that I remember so well from the 60s was from Bobby Kennedy. When Bobby Kennedy said, Some people see the world the way it is and ask, why? Other people see things that never are and ask, why not? Do you spend your life looking at your world and asking, why? Or do you spend your life looking at all that might be and say, why not? It is our faith in Christ that enables us to think different, to heal our blindness, to enable us to see a different way. It is God's miracle, God's gift for you. Secondly, when it comes into the story, it says, and after Jesus healed him, he followed him. As I said earlier, Mark didn't want you to miss it. And he adds, on the way. To follow Jesus on the way. It's very clear when we talk about that, it means not just what is God doing for you. Yes, God heals your blindness. But it also then means, will God use you to heal the blindness of others, to bless the lives of others? Will you be committed to blessing life? It is how you change the world. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If you're going to follow Jesus on the way, it means you are making a commitment to be one person who blesses life wherever you are. Maybe in small ways, in big ways, but some way every day. Do you believe God can use you to change the world? We follow on the way. You know, I've been listening so much to our country right now debate our health care system, Affordable Care Act, the new thing Republicans are putting out, and everybody's discussing the pros and cons and how do we provide health care. As I've been reading and listening and studying, I came across a fascinating story about a man named Dr. Jack McConnell. Jack McConnell is an amazing physician. It turned out he was born and raised in southwest Virginia. He was one of seven kids. They lived out in the hills. They were very poor. As I got to doing reading and more research, what I discovered was his father was a Methodist minister out in the hills of Virginia. That's where he was raised. 
And they were so poor, they never had a car. So wherever he went, he had to hitchhike. And he said he felt safe hitchhiking out in the hills of Virginia. You got wherever you went, and you're always home by dinner. Whenever you got home at dinner time, his father every night always asked, All right, what did you do to help someone today? And you better have an answer. What did you do to help someone today? He said his father really instilled a great love and a joy in their faith in Christ. He managed to get grow up and even in spite of the challenging circumstances, graduated high school, went to college, graduated college, went to medical school, became a physician, also got involved in research. He actually is the one who developed Tylenol capsule, all kinds of protocols for the MRI. He had a fascinating, amazing, successful career, so much so that by his early 60s, he decided to retire, and he and his wife moved to Hilton Head, South Carolina, so they could play golf and enjoy the good things of life. He hadn't been there long. And one day he was driving across the island when there was a young man out there hitchhiking. And he always stopped and picked up hitchhikers to pay it forward. He picked up this young man. And literally did he know that day it was going to change thousands and thousands of people's lives. Turned out the young man was looking for a job on his way for a job interview. And Jack asked him, about it, and he said, Well, he was getting trying to get a job. His wife was pregnant, they had two kids, he was needing this job. And hearing all that, this was back in 1989, Jack said to him, Well, do you have health insurance? He said, No, we've never had health insurance. We can't afford it. It started Jack doing some research, and what he discovered was one third of the people who lived on Hilton Head didn't have access to health care. One-third did not have health insurance. They were the invisible people. One-third of the people, they were doing those jobs like taking care of the golf greens, waiters and waitresses, construction. They were doing all the work to take care of the tourists and the rich people who lived there. A third of the population did not have health care. And he started learning about this, and Jack finally thought to himself, why isn't somebody doing something about this? And he heard a voice say, you are the person. He started working on it, checking a little more into it. As I said, this was 1989. What he began to realize was, you know, there's a whole lot of retired physicians living at Hilton Head. And he thought, this should be easy. I bet a bunch of them want to volunteer their time to help take care, use their skills, bless life and heal people. It would give their lives meaning and purpose and joy to have something to do. That's why they became doctors in the first place. And, and it would bless the people who needed the help, our neighbors. But as soon as he floated the idea, of course, then it was, well, wait a minute, you've got to be licensed in a certain way and there's malpractice and you're going to have to follow these kinds of rules and... It was threatening other people. They worried about business and everybody finally agreed. It's impossible. It won't work. I want to read you the latest recount of it. It took McConnell and several volunteers a few years to pull it all together before the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic could open its doors in 1993. 
But by getting state laws regarding retired physicians changed, everyone said that was impossible, and getting malpractice insurance changed, that was impossible, McConnell made it possible for retired health care providers to do what they loved, help make people well. They literally went to the state legislator, they got the laws changed and the malpractice changed, and in the end, they could come and practice. And now they will have, 25 years later, more than 30,000 office visits a year. More than 100 physicians are giving their time freely all the time to take care of the patients and nurses and mental health care workers and, and, and dentists. It is all provided if you live on Hilton Head Island and you're making a low wage, your health care is free, provided by your neighbors who wanted to do something with their lives to bless others. It has been so successful that there are now 71 medical volunteers in medicine clinics in 22 different states across the country. I got to reading their mission statement. It was obvious that Jack McConnell was very instrumental in writing the mission statement because really it sounds more like a prayer. May we have eyes to see those who have been rendered invisible and excluded. Open arms and hearts to reach out and include them and healing hands to touch their lives with love. It is because of our faith in Christ that we're able to see that we have been healed. Our eyes have been opened. So you can look at your circumstances and think different. You can ask the question, why not? You can be used by God to change the world. It really is an impossible possibility. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.